Welcome back to the Commission Podcast. In this episode, we'll hear from Alex Lyle, pastor at Streatham Central Church, on the important topic of being generous for the city. Alex engages with how to be a good steward and even entrepreneurial with our money and our church's money, all with eternity in mind. Enjoy. I've been feeling really nervous about this seminar because I think there's, there's something wonderfully significant about it. Um, some might be coming here because they think money is a niche subject. Uh, some might be not coming here because they think money is a niche subject. Um, money is not a niche subject. It's a heart subject. And Jesus clearly thought it was a greater indicator of your heart than any other topic. Because he speaks about it more than any other topic. Uh, one of the next steps I'll suggest for you is that you spend the next month just going through Luke's gospel slowly and finding anything that relates to money, wealth, assets, use of resources, generosity. It's not a niche subject. This is a heart thing. And so you might have come here thinking about projects or how to use your wealth. This is much more about your heart. And um, I'm feeling weak as I come to this seminar. Um, and as I was praying... I was reminded of one of the things I really want to hammer home and that the Lord has really laid on my heart and has become kind of my favorite verse. In, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? I have nothing to share with you that I have not received from the Lord. And I can only share with you something that's useful if the Lord by his spirit works through me to speak and to you, through you to hear. So I'm going to, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray big prayers that the Lord does something wonderful through what many think is as a niche subject. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to think about money. And we pray that whatever conundrums we've got in terms of what to do with our own funds, whether we've got too much or too little, um, whether our church has a big financial project in mind, Lord, we pray most of all that we would come to you recognizing that we have nothing that we have not received, and so we come wanting to receive from you. Please pour out your grace on us now, work in our hearts, shape and change our hearts, and we pray this would be much more about understanding your grace than it would be about clever tricks with our own funds. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, so money is a massive heart issue. And the reason Jesus talks about it more than any other subject is because money has the power to sit over us like a false god. Famously, Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. And we don't serve God because he needs anything from us. We serve God in relying on him to provide our every need and security. And money is the big alternative, especially in a wealthy society, that we rely on. And so, as we, as we dig into this subject, we're dealing with massive spiritual battles that are going on. I, I might come on to this later um, when we look at Luke 16. But Jesus used the term for money or wealth that's, I don't know why it's translated in the NIV or the ESV. Um, mammon is now translated wealth or money. But you may know in the older versions it's translated mammon. But it's translated mammon because it's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. So the word mammon is there in the Aramaic. And so we still have in our NIVs and ESVs, Abba, Father, don't we? Because that's an Aramaic word. We still have Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, because those who were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus remembered those powerful Aramaic words. But for some reason, we don't have mammon. But mammon was like a... I mean, some, some theologians debate this. It's hard to find exact evidence. But mammon could have been an Aramaic false god that they actually worshipped to provide their every need. So you cannot serve both God and money. Now... A major false god that we're aware of, and you'd be especially aware of if you're in the Middle East, is the false god of, of Allah, the false god of Islam. If you've done, ever done any outreach to Muslims, you'll know 
that Islam's stupid. I mean, it's really, really stupid. I, I chat regularly to our local imam, and the evidence for Islam is just absolutely, completely, utterly useless. I mean, we, we have debates with scholars in Christianity over you know, whether two or three decades is enough for an eyewitness to still remember what happened. The first thing written about Muhammad was 200 years after his death. The first jot that touched a piece of paper or a parchment or whatever it was. I mean, it's just a stupid religion. But if you've ever engaged with a Muslim, you'll know that the God of Islam sits oppressively over the Muslims with fear that they can't do anything. And, and, and even if they're really interested in Jesus, I mean, the, the social pressure is just massive. And I think the God of Mammon sits massively, heavily over the West. I mean, why is it in Europe that the place where the Reformation happens, why is it that we're seeing gospel decline? Why are we seeing, like, you know, England thriving with maybe 3 to 5% evangelical Christians? And the mainland, I mean, it's like sub 1% in some areas. The, the God of Mammon is sitting heavily over the West. This is a massive spiritual battle. And, and so I want us first to be humbled and challenged because money is this false God sitting oppressively over us. But then to realize that once we're released from that oppression, we're going to find deep happiness in generosity and to experience gospel renewal. And I want us to believe that the New Testament is possible. Okay? Now, the first thing I think we need to realize, especially if you come here wondering how to make everything tie together, is we're all in the 1%. I don't know if you realize we're in the 1%, but we are all in the 1%. We always think of the 1% as being the, the multimillionaires up to the billionaires. But World Bank economist Branko Milanovic wrote a book in 2011 called The Haves and the Have-Nots, in which he calculated that most 99%ers in America and it would be the same in the UK, if not wealthier. Most 99%ers in America are 1%ers on a global level. He says this, by global standards, America's middle class is also really, really rich. To make it into the richest 1% globally, all you need is an income of around $34,000. That'd be about 25,000 pounds. The average family in the United States, and I think the UK even more, has nearly 50 times that of the world's poorest. Now, you might immediately be thinking, yeah, yeah, but life's a lot more expensive here. Well, in which case, sell up and move to a poorer part of the world and be super generous. But then you're thinking, no, 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 the Lord's put me here. He's called me here. He's placed me here. Well, then he'll provide, won't he? Because <laughs> he's the God of the universe. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it says the Lord. Well, here we go. Wealth is a bigger trial than poverty. I want, I want us to look at James chapter 1. Hopefully you can see that on the screen. Um, if you can't, you can look up James chapter 1, verse 9 um, in your Bibles. James says this, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. He's just talked about trials, facing trials of many kinds. And then he says this, believers in humble circumstances, as in the poor, should take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms fall, it, its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. We have this feeling, and, and we know we shouldn't feel like that, but we see someone poor, someone really struggling, and we think, poor you. And James says, no, 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 no. They should be looking at you and thinking, poor you. Because you have a much bigger trial to deal with. If you're really poor, you can get the gospel, can't you? Because you understand you're needy. And so your whole mindset is that you're in need, and you're crying out in need. But if you are wealthy enough to cope, you don't really need God. So the poor should be looking at the rich. That's you. Basically, if you live in this country, you're rich because even the, the benefit system makes you richer than 80% of the world. James 5. Now listen, you rich people. 
Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, if you're a homeowner here, you're probably in the mindset that you should hoard. Okay, so that the British mindset is on the whole, okay, yeah, get a mortgage, but then you just want to pay it down, and to be mortgage-free, that is the best thing possible. We're going to come on later, and you may want to jot down a question on this. But, but the difference between a mortgage and credit card loan is just massive. And one of the problems for this, and one of the reasons I think that a spirit of mammon sits over the West, is that in GCSE maths, people are taught trigonometry. I mean, how many people here have ever used trigonometry in their day job? One. Oh, there we are. Two. Okay. Right. How many people here have ever made a decision whether to get a bank account, a loan, or a mortgage? Everyone. Who knows what amortization is? Okay, that's because there's some money-interested people in here. But you... Okay. But simple stuff that you need to know in order to get a bank account or a loan or a mortgage, we're just not taught. We hoard wealth. And I think we hoard it in our homes, but I'm going to come on to that. Maybe you want to ask a question as to why I think that. I, just keep, keep reading in James 5. Look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are currently crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Okay, when we, when we start saving up, have you thought about what a theologically significant word that is, saving? Who's the saviour? Who are your savings saving? Who are your savings saving? As we save up to provide for ourselves and protect ourselves and give ourselves security, there's a massive danger that our hearts are moving away from relying on the Lord as our security and on to relying on our bank balances. But also, while we save for ourselves, when God wants to pour generously through us, we're defrauding those who we should give to. So the more we hoard... And it might be in the whole West. You know, it might be a collective thing. The more others are defrauded. And so you have this extraordinary global inequality where almost everyone in this country can be in the 1%. And almost everyone in Mozambique is in the 1% at the other end. But you see, in this very powerful and condemning passage, there's just amazing verse of grace in there. First, it seems like it's condemning us, isn't it? Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. When we hoard, when we save for ourselves, when we think about our security before anyone else's, there is a sense in which we're killing people inadvertently to whom we should be generous. But James knew when he wrote that verse who we would really think of, because it's singular, isn't it? You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Who is the innocent one who was not opposing you? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the only truly innocent one. And what did he do? 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Though he was rich, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He came down. The innocent one came down. You murdered and killed him. Our sin killed him. But grace came through our sin. So we should feel a sense of guilt and a sense of how we've misviewed our savings and how we should be thinking much more about how we could be generous rather than how we can be providing our personal security. But even as we feel that sense of, oh my word, like, how do I even, how do I even stop this? Like, how do I even stop myself sinning in this way when a lot of it's just got to do with a really hard decision in the supermarket as to whether fair trade is fair enough or whether I should buy that or that or, you know... God knows our hearts. He knows that we're screwed up. He knows that we're messed up. 
And actually, in the very act of us condemning and murdering the innocent one who was not opposing us, came his grace. So, so throw off the controlling power of mammon and step into the joy of generosity. And, and let's have a look at Acts 20. Um, it's there on your screen, Acts 20, verse 30. This is the end of Paul's preaching to the Ephesian elders. Um, so this is to the church. It's a mindset the whole church should have. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You worried about the inheritance your children might get? Let me challenge you, if you've got any wealth, disinherit your children, plan to disinherit your children. Okay, give them this inheritance instead. Give them this inheritance. Okay, I, I was the beneficiary of inheritance. When I was 30, my father died, so that was 10 years ago. Um, and um, when he died, I, because I had experience in the city, um, and uh, although I'm the youngest of four, I had experience in the city, so I took on managing the family estate. And my father's total estate was worth about 8 million, so over time, I'm due to inherit about a quarter of that. Um, and um, the hassle, the hassle. You know, he had money tied up in, in six houses and beautiful land, which I grew up in. I, I grew up in immense privilege, like totally idyllic childhood. And, and my father was very generous, a very loving home. I didn't resent him at all. He was really, really... He, actually, he understood grace in many ways in the family, more than most... Uh, Christians, even though he didn't become a believer until, or at least he didn't fully embrace the gospel until the last year of his life. And, um, and yet there are many, many times where I wish I could have pressed a button that would have just made it all go away and I have not, not worry about this stuff. And, and one of the reasons that I'm here speaking to you is because the Lord's given me a lot of hassle with wealth and I've learned a lot of things through that. But wealth is much more of a burden than it is a release. It's far more freeing, actually, to be actively depending on the Lord. In poverty, no, but in family, yes. And we'll come on to that about the church family. Okay, Acts 20, verse 32. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What does sanctified mean? Holy, another word for it, is safe or secure. Like the safest place in the universe is the Holy of Holies. And you're there, aren't you? What, what does Hebrews um, 10 say? Um, that you have access straight into the Holy of Holies. You can come with confidence to the throne of grace. You are sanctified. You are holy. You are totally safe and secure. And if your Heavenly Father thinks you need anything, you just ask Him and He will pour it out on you generously. He will never give you a stone if you ask for bread. He'll never give you a snake if you ask for fish. You are sanctified. You are safe. Your inheritance is secure. Don't provide for your security in your wealth. Don't do it. Be like Paul, verse 33. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Another way of translating that word blessed is happy. You will be happier. You will be more joy-filled. Your life will be more satisfied. You will experience the, the shalom of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord, the grace of the Lord. Much more if you give than you receive. Jesus said it himself. Paul repeats it, quotes it. He says it as his final word to the Ephesian elders. This is what you need to know more than anything else. You will be happier if you give than if you receive. And, and if you get this, it'll lead to spirit-empowered gospel renewal. This is Acts 2. This is the end of that amazing chapter where people are filled with the spirit to go out preaching the gospel. The church grows. And what's the church look like? They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And what marked them? All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone 
who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They knew each other so well. They were in and out of each other's so, homes so much. And those who had more were so open with what they had that anyone knew it was theirs. They really, really lived out what is mine is yours. What about Acts 4? After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. What does a spirit-filled, missional church look like? Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. We use, misuse the words of the Lord Jesus. Do not let your left hand know what your right is doing. And we say that means we should all keep our finances private. and We shouldn't tell anyone what we've got. And it's all about ourselves. And then occasionally we should be generous. Let's be at least 10%, but let's not tell anyone what our 10% is. Let's keep it all hush-hush. How can you share everything you have if people don't know? If you've got wealth, go and let your church family know that you've got wealth. And if they need it, come and ask you. You might say no. When I was 21, 22, I'd moved to the city, started working in London. I thought, oh, I could get a mortgage. I could buy a flat. I went to my dad. And I said, Dad, look, I'm young, but I've got a salary now. I think it would be a good time to maybe buy a flat. Would you help me? We had a conversation about it. We looked at a flat in Battersea Park, uh, overlooking Battersea Park, three-bed flat. I could rent two of them out to my friends. We talked about it. He said, oh, the market's a bit high at the moment. You know, maybe wait for a crash. We didn't do it. We didn't do it. But we had the conversation. I didn't resent him. I look back and we, you know, it would have been great to buy a flat then. I probably would have made a million out of it. But, but the point is the conversation happened. The conversation happened. We're a family. Is there kind of conversation happening in your church family? And if it's not, why not? Because in the early church, all the believers were... One in heart and mind, no one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. Do you see that? Gospel growth, no needy persons. Gospel growth, no needy persons. Those two things are massively linked. Okay, They're sharing everything they have. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And Joseph obviously hadn't read the middle-class version of the Bible, which says, keep your finances to yourself, and if you make a big gift, don't let anyone know. Why did Luke put it in the Bible? Why did Luke put it in the Bible? Because he wants people to give generously, not in order to get praise from men, well, then they'll receive their reward in full. But so the whole church family knows what's yours is mine. We share everything. And if we get this, we'll see spirit-empowered gospel renewal begin in us and flow from us to others because money reveals your heart first and foremost. And if your heart's in the wrong place, then you're not going to be gospel-minded. Okay, we're going to do some next steps. While we do the next steps, you, um, you might want to write down some questions. You may have some questions already. Um, but I'm going to give you some next steps, just so that you've got something practical to take away. Firstly, write down, and it may take you longer than the next 30 seconds to do this, but write down what is your enough, and what's your enough to live on. When I first moved to London, um, I... Uh, went to St. Helens Bishopsgate one Sunday, not because I wanted to go there, I was going to a much smaller church, but because I wanted to get a job in the city. And I thought, oh, you know, where will I find Christians who might be able to use the old boys' club network to get me a job in the city? And, um, of course, St. Helens. So I went there, enjoyed the service. After the service, there was a meal. Kept asking, does anyone know anyone who works in the city? And um, they said, oh, yeah, here's a guy from Merrill Lynch. I sat down. There was a meal afterwards. Sat down, chatted to him. He said to me, Alex, you don't need my help to find a job. Market's booming, it's 2003, um, you'll find a job easily. What you need to know is a graduate salary is enough to live on for the rest of your life. So as your salary increases, just give it all away. I, I wouldn't recognize that guy if he walked in the tent now. But what he said to me just 
really transformed my life and made me excited about what I was about to earn. I'd been living on six grand a year as a student, well, actually 5,400, because I'd been encouraged that the 10% principle was good. And, and so I was about to earn, you know, 25K, I think that was my starting salary. I didn't need that. So it was exciting to think, how much could I give? And then as my salary rose, I could give more away. Now, obviously, when I had a wife and kids, they need providing for two. But we tried to keep the minimum principle and, and think about, you know, it's so much more joyful. So much more joyful. And it's so much harder to give away when you're living, when you're enough becomes a lot. So if you're young here, you're, you're the key target. And we're going we're to come on to, Jesus said, if you've been faithful with very little, you'll be entrusted with much. Uh, one of the things I find frustrating about networks like ours, and, and you know, I'm part of this, is we, when we've got big projects, we go to what are called the patrons. Those are the, the, the guys who've made the, the, the two, five, ten, hundred million. And you know what? When you start making a lot of money, you basically know either I... Either I give quite a lot of this away or it's going to eat me. I mean, they really, you know, even the world sees that. The world sees that, that too much money eats people. It destroys them. And they've got to start stepping into generosity. The, people, the, the danger, though, with going to the patrons is that, that the normal people think, oh, well, they can give. Jesus says, if you're faithful with very little, you'll be entrusted with much. Hold him to that promise and say, Lord, I'm, I'm seeking to be more generous than I thought I could be with this. It's pushing me to the edge. I, I, I'm running out of savings. I need you, Lord, to come through. See what he does. Write down what is your enough and then give everything away, else away. Then write down a quick calculation. What have you earned in your life so far? Let me give you a quick answer. The answer is nothing. What do you have that you did not receive? You haven't earned anything, even the very ability to earn anything. But you could write down what you've earned so far in your life and think, oh, you know, could I be more generous with that? And then write down a quick guess of what you'll have received before you retire. And that may be because you've got plans to grow a business or you've got an extension plan in your house and eventually that will pay itself off and you'll be wealthier or you'll receive some inheritance. And think, what could you give? It's much easier to give something away before you've received it. <laughs> Next, next step. Resolve to, I said this at the beginning, resolve to read through Luke over the month and find all the references to anything to do with wealth, money, generosity, including, I, I went to a, a conference a month ago and the guy was speaking through the parables in Luke and he said even the lost coin and the lost sheep, that's about money, isn't it? The sheep, sheep were an asset. Like you, you could count someone's bank balance much more by the sheep on their hillside because banks didn't exist so much. Resolve to give away at least 10% gross, not net, gross, not just what you get in your bank account. Think big. Think about what you earn, what you're paid, what's on your pay package. Think about everything you have. Resolve to give away at least 10% gross of everything you've listed and pray through whether the Lord could give more through you. So make 10% a minimum. Resolve to make 10% a minimum. Too often I've heard pastors say, look, for some of you, 10% won't be enough. But for some of you, 10% will be too much. No, 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 no. 10% is never too much. 10% is the biblical standard minimum. And the reason is it's, it's saying to the Lord, this is going to hurt, but I'm trusting you. It's an expression of trust. It's a reflection of the heart. If you're not giving 10% away, there's something wrong with your heart. Or you just haven't been taught. Which is fine. Just, you know. If you don't give 10% away after you leave this tent, there's something wrong with your heart. Some of you might want to push back on that. <laughs> Resolve to pray deeply that your heart is in the right place and at the same time to disciple at least one other person in their heart attitude to money. Okay, so, so go for yourself, but then think, okay, if this is a heart issue across the church, I've been taught something that I can pass on to someone else. And actually they'll know more joy. It's more blessed to give than to receive. They'll, they'll, we'll step into spirit-empowered gospel renewal if we do this. Seven. Resolve to pray and that the Lord would help you and your church. Resolve to pray. Sorry, I've edited this too much. Resolve to pray that the Lord would help you and your church to encourage one another and especially your pastor into an Acts 2 and Acts 4 mindset. 
Now, now one of the things I want to do is expose... Are there any pastors here? Okay, one or two. Right. Now... No, no, Pastor Elder, that's an appointed role. We're all ministers. We're all ministers. I was scared to speak up because I'm shouting at you. Yeah. Yeah, good point, good point. One of the problems I've found, and, and this is because the Lord worked on my heart, I thought I earned 25000 a year as a pastor, so 10% of that is 2500 The thing is that as a pastor, you get a free house. Now, in Streatham... For the church to rent the house that I live in would be 30, 40 grand a year, minimum probably. And so for me to live in that house net of a fully taxable salary, I'd have to be on about 80, 90, maybe 100,000 in order to then have 25 grand left over as pocket money. So my 10% isn't 2,500, it's eight or nine. But pastors have got themselves into a mindset. It's not their fault because the spirit of mammon sits over us. Pastors have got themselves into the mindset that they're poor. Now, if you really are underpaying your pastor, then you need to really think about this. You need to really care about this. I remember being told when I was a teenager listening to a talk, um, when you're earning, the guy said, he was just a music leader in, the, in a church, and he, he said, when you're earning, um, work out what your pastor's on. And then if you're on more than that, give it all away. And if, as you experiment with giving all of the, that away, it doesn't work, then pay your pastor more. <laughs> now, the thing is, we live in an extraordinary country, this one, with the, the benefit society. So when a pastor who's on 25, I've tried this, starts giving away more, the government say, you're not earning enough. So they top them up with tax credits, and then you can give even more away. And I had a phone call with HMRC, where I called them up and I said, look, I'm deliberately giving away more so that I can give away even more, and it's your money, I don't really need it, is that okay? And they went, well, you could actually do that with your pension, so yeah, good on you. <laughs> help your pastor to understand this. It will really help them. They might actually find that they're, they're struggling to get to the end of the month because they don't know about all those things, and you could help them out. So it's not just about you know, finger-wagging, are oh, you giving away 10% of gross. It's helping them step into that mindset, helping them with the sometimes... For many of us here, maybe you're thinking, you know, money's scary and doing my accounts is scary and getting an account and working it all out and filling in these massive forms and it gets more and more complicated every year and claiming these, this and that and this and that. Um, eight, resolve to be shrewd and entrepreneurial in your attitude to financial generosity. We might have time to come on to um, Luke 19, but could you turn your one meaner into ten? So Jesus gives his servant... Uh, sorry. The master gives his servants in the parable of the ten minas. He gives them one mina each, and then he goes away. And one of them turns their one into ten, another into five, and then the other buries it in the ground. And, and that's the middle-class Brit who pays down their mortgage and then sits on this massive bank of gold, which is a house. Okay? Because of mortgages, mortgages have made house prices crazy high unnecessarily. So you don't pay the price of the value of the bricks of your house for your house. You pay the price of the value of the bricks of your house plus what banks are willing to lend people. So you have this massive store of capital in your house. You are a banker if you own a house. And you're either a bad banker or you're a good banker. And Jesus says, be a good banker. Okay? If you want to know more about that, if you've got a house, if you want help with thinking about that, you can ask me. And if you're worried that I'm being a bit crazy, talk to Paul, who's much more sensible than me. And then, point nine, resolve to give your children a real inheritance, i.e., nothing. I am just this year starting to get some of that money that I talked about. I'm 40, I have a house to live in, and I have a job. I don't need anything else. Most people get inheritance when they're in their 50s because their parents die even older. You don't, don't leave your children anything. And if you are planning to help them, help them right now. Otherwise, give it away. Last one. This is what I want to really emphasize. Resolve to stand under the waterfall. Let me try and use a verse to illustrate this, and then I'll use an illustration to illustrate it further. So Luke 6, Jesus says, Give, 
and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The size of the bowl that you go to God with is what he will fill. So if you go to him with a tiny little egg cup, he'll fill the egg cup. If you go to him with a pudding bowl, he'll fill the pudding bowl. And so on and so on and so on. But where do you need to be to receive it? You need to be under the waterfall of his grace. His resources are completely and utterly limitless. But what does the middle-class British mindset say? It says, go to him with your Tupperware. Fill up your Tupperware, then put the lid on it, clip it in, and then go and store the Tupperware in the cupboard in case at any point you might need something. But what happens to water in a Tupperware in a cupboard? What happens to it? Would you want to drink it a year later? Is that where you'd go for your source of fresh water? It's probably got bugs in it. It's probably brown by that point. It'll probably poison you and kill you. Okay? But you stay there with your bowl under the waterfall. You can just keep, keep drinking from it. But as you drink with your bowl under the waterfall of God's grace, what's going to happen to the water that's flowing into it? It's going to overflow to others. In Mark's gospel, Jesus uses exactly the same language. Do you know what he uses it for? for receiving and spreading the word. He's talking about in the parable of the sower. It's the end of the parable of the sower. You could go and read it at the end of Mark chapter 4. And Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So often in our evangelism, what we're told is, I'm going to tell you how to share the gospel. Then you go off completely on your own with your Tupperware and, and then take bits of it and give it to others. And we're like, oh, I can't do it on my own. Of course you can't do it on your own. But if you stand under the waterfall of God's grace, drinking deep of God's grace and realizing how good that gospel is, how amazing the word is, and your, your, the size of your bowl gets bigger and bigger as you dig more and more into the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's going to overflow. Because you're more in love with Jesus and you think he's amazing. You can't evangelize with your own resources. You can't give with your own resources. You stand under the waterfall of God's grace in financial generosity. You will be happier. I promise you'll be happier. Because Jesus said it. It's not the promise from Alex Lyle. As the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In this tent, we have the capacity for millions and millions and millions of pounds to be given to the gospel. If the Lord lays it on our heart, that that's what he wants to give through us. So ask the Lord, what is my measure? What do you want me to give? Where have you placed me? What do you want me for? I promise you, Jesus promises you, if you step, step into greater entrepreneurial generosity, you will be happier. You'll be happier. If you depend on yourself, no. And it's possible as a pastor to depend on yourself. You know, I went into ministry thinking, God needs Alex Lyle in Streatham to save the world. And just the last 10 years of my ministry has been God saying to me again and again, I, I really don't need you. You need me. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need the project you've got in mind. He doesn't need, he doesn't need you. But you can't serve both God and money. And so serving God is trusting him to give you everything you need that that might overflow to others. Yeah, let me pause there. And you first in, question. How do we know where to give? I think... It will sound trite to say it, but pray about it. Pray that the Lord would make it clear. Um, and then talk about it in community. You know, start saying, you know, I've got this amount to give. Now, you, you might want to stand up at the front and say that, but you know, talk to trusted people in the church, talk to those in leadership, talk about it. Talk about it. Say what they said in Acts 4, which is, I, I don't consider any of my possessions my own. I, I'm willing to share it with anyone who has need. Well, there may not be anyone in particular in need in your church. Um, I'm, I'm in this strange situation where, for the last, so there have been times when it's been very obvious for me to give. Um, there are times when I was leaving the city and I'd saved up a lot of money, um, actually in the commission accounts. I'd, I'd given money while I was in the city, I'd given money to my future training. So you may know people who are in um, 
training for ministry, and they often send around letters, and it's great that they do, and they say, you know, could you support me in ministry? Well, I knew I'd be sending one of those letters in the future, but I ended up, rather than working three years in the city, I worked seven, and I earned far more than I needed. So I, I gave to, my, to myself. I answered my own future letter. And, um, and when I left the city, God had just given me much more than I expected. So I just wrote to Stephen Hatheron and said, it's yours. And then um, Lucy and I calculated that we needed something for the next two years because we were going to be unpaid. So we worked out what it was. Lucy's dad was very nervous because he'd married his daughter off to someone who was earning a lot of money in the city. And then, you know, nine months after we were married, I went to him and he thought maybe I was going to say, you know, honeymoon baby. But instead, I said to him, I'm leaving the city. And he was terrified, you know, he thought his daughter would be secure. So I had to sit down with him with a spreadsheet and say, you know, for the next two years, we're going to be totally fine, and then we'll stop being paid. At the end of those two years, we had exactly the same in the bank account that we did at the beginning. I, I don't know, I don't know. I, I don't know how that happened. Since then, I've been starting to receive inheritance. So now I've got way more than I need, and I'm asking that desperate prayer, Lord, where, where should I give it? You know, I could give it all to tier fund in one go, but that would make one, you know, one percent difference to one year's output. And, you know, I didn't think... They would even say that was a good use of money. So sometimes we just don't know. But talk about it. Any, any other questions? I think on the whole, you, you, most people are given pensions as part of their job. In fact, if you have a payroll job, now it's compulsory for your employer to give you a pension. And I think that's a wise thing to have because that will give you, in proportion to your income, the same income after you retire. And so it's just an extension of your salary, basically, into the future. Um, but you do still need to pray about that and say, Lord, am I trusting my pension or am I trusting you? Oh, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. So mortgage, student loan, they're similar. In fact, student loan is even better than a mortgage at the moment. I mean, law might change. But with a student loan, as far as I understand it, you get given the loan and you only have to pay it back if you earn a certain amount of money. And then over that certain amount of money, 20-something, you have to pay 9% of it off. Um, so over every, every penny you earn over 20-something thousand, you pay 9% back to a student loan uh, to pay off your student loan. If by the time you hit 60, it's cancelled. Right. Student loan is not a loan. It's a graduate specified tax. Because you only pay it once you earn enough to pay it. And if you never earn enough to pay it, you never have to pay it off. My wife's got a student loan. And unless she changes her plans, which I'd be delighted for her too if she wants to, and we'll talk about it and pray about it, but it looks like she'll never pay off her student loan. So it's not a loan. It's not like a credit card loan which would sit heavily over us. So, um, yeah, give 10% of that. Um, <laughs> so, so the main thing is to stop... We, I, I tell you, this is really helpful. It's to stop us having this mindset of the patrons will give. You know, sometimes the big givers, they make up too big a percentage of a church's giving, and if one person leaves, then that can really mess up a church. But if everyone in the church was giving actually 10% of their salary, that would not be a problem at all. I, I've never come across a church in the UK yet where people actually give 10%. So pray into that. Um, and that, that, I mean, you'd find if, if every commission church, everyone actually gave 10%, I, I'm pretty much, I reckon on average, the um, income from each church would triple. It's a hard one, that. I think if you're not particularly wealthy, then 10% to church is probably a good level of trust. If you're, if you're too wealthy, it could be, you could become that person who's the problem person. You know, you, you end up, you know, you know, you're making up 30% of the church's budget. <laughs> and, and so at that point, you want to be careful because actually it's not helpful for the church to have one person propping up the whole thing or a couple of people propping up the whole thing. So, but I think it's something to be open about. Like, you, you don't even have to reveal the amounts. You could say to your pastor, you know, I'm, 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 or, or to those you trust in the church, and I'm thinking 10% would be right, but, you know, should I be giving some of that 10% to other things? I wish more people asked us at our church as elders, like, what are you giving that 10% to? You know, if we all gave 10%, so our, and our budget went from 100,000 a year to 300,000 a year, then I reckon everyone in the church would be a bit more interested in what we were doing with that extra 200,000. And they'd be like, well, I've got this real heart for reaching the unreached in this area. I've got real heart for the poor in this area. And, and what you'd find is the more people give, the more they're interested in how that generosity is used. So I'd go for the, the main principle should be that it goes to your church. You know, they laid it at the apostles' feet, so that was their local church. So the 10% probably should go to the church, but in conversation. Uh, yeah, the question is, oh, sorry, yeah. Thanks, oh, that's the first time I've remembered. Maybe you, a lot of you guys are thinking, what is he talking about? <laughs> um, 
the question is, what, what if you are being supported by others and that isn't enough for you even to live on and then you're supposed to give 10% of that but then it's their money and then... On the whole, the principle is, and, and, and churches should do this, you know, churches should give enough to their pastors or their ministry teams in order for them to be able to give 10%. 10% is part of that. So when you draw up your enough, you know, we talked about the enough, what's your enough? That should include 10%. And then beyond the 10%, so your, your 10% is part of your enough. 10% should always be part of your budgets. If you go to CAP, you know, Christians Against Poverty, when they help someone out of debt, the first thing on the item of the budget is giving. The first thing. These are people coming out of debt, of immense poverty. First thing is giving. Um, so, yeah, I, we should always think 10%. And if our supporters aren't giving us enough to give 10%, then we need to go back to our supporters. Yeah, that's really helpful. I would, the principle we have in our church is that none of the pastors, elders know what anyone gives, but we do know whether anyone gives. So I'll often say from the front, look, if you're... If you're not giving at all at the moment, we'll, we'll come after you. So if you, if you want us to not come after you, just give, give one penny a month, one, one penny a month, and then you'll get us off your back. But it's much more about the heart. And so the reason we'll come to you is because we'll know that if you're not giving anything, you haven't even prayed about it. That's what we'll know. Um, in terms of what we give, I don't think it's right for us to know. If someone then voluntarily, like they do in Acts, comes forth and says, I've got more than I need, I'd love to share it, brilliant. But that doesn't need to be to the elders, the pastors. And, and, and elders and pastors need to be protected themselves from the dangers of money and the love of money. So, yeah, hopefully that's helpful. So find out what they need to know and then offer to do it for them. Um, there's uh, an amazing woman who's here. Where's Kat? Are you here? Kat Lee. There you are. Talk to Kat Lee. <laughs> um, she's passionate about this. And... Um, yeah, the problem is a lot of people in ministry have no idea. Um, I'm off to speak to stewardship. We're, we're off to speak to stewardship in a couple of weeks to talk about this very subject. And, and it's not fair for them to be expected to know it all. But what is important is that there's someone in the church who's helping them to do that. And Kat does that for far too many people. And she'd love to offload her work onto you. So there we are, your first employee. Um, but yeah, if you can help your pastors to be better at this, do. Because it's not, it's not just about the heart, it's also about admin hassle. So home ownership at the moment, and it has been the case for the last 30 years, it's cheaper to own than to rent. Let me give you, I give you the example of me and my dad and what we, I didn't actually buy because he didn't think it was a good time to buy. And it may be in the coming market that things get so volatile that you decide it's not a good time to buy. But if it is a good time to buy, what happened with my sister? She was at Edinburgh University. 20 years ago, and uh, more than that. And she went to my dad, and she was like, well, I've got to rent for the next year because we're being kicked out of halls, and we all rent together. And he was like, oh, gosh, that rent's very expensive. And then he looked at house prices. And so he said, well, why don't you buy this five-bedroom flat, then rent the other four rooms to housemates? That money will not only pay down the mortgage, but will also pay your entire living costs through university. I'll stump up the deposit, but it's not a gift, it's a loan. And if it grows, I want it to grow in line with the value of the property. Five, six, seven years later, she gave my dad back more money than he'd lent her. He'd saved entire university funding costs because the rent paid not only her mortgage, but also her living costs. And she was set up for life. It wasn't a zero-sum game. He didn't lose money to provide her with money. They both made money. That's what happens in a wealthy family. You live in a wealthy family. It's called your church. And I would love it if those who need to rent and think, oh, I just couldn't possibly, could go to someone slightly wealthier, put a charge against their house in order to buy a new house, and then grow that and find that they're paying less in mortgage payments than they would be in rent. And then in future, they'll be able to be more generous to someone else. It's not a zero-sum game. And this is the shrewd manager stuff. Like Jesus says, the people of this world are more shrewd in using their worldly wealth than the people of the light. The people of this world know that. You might have come across building developers, buy one house, do it up, mortgage it, buy the next, buy the next, and now they're billionaires. There are people like that. They're good at it. Be like that. Luke 16, where Jesus says, the people of this world are more shrewd in using their worldly wealth than the people of the light. And the conservative evangelical finishes the sentence, therefore be nothing like them. But Jesus says, therefore I tell you, use your worldly wealth, your mammon, your mammon, to make friends for yourselves so that after it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
use your wealth entrepreneurially like the world does, but rather than just with their retirement in mind, with your eternity in mind, so that there'll be people welcoming you into eternal dwellings with true riches. And he wants you to use your very little, your very little, well, so that he can entrust you with much. And if you bury your very little in a mortgage-free house or in the ground, I think you're being very unwise. You may make a call to do that. It may not be possible to release money from your house. It is impossible for some people over a certain age to release money from their house, isn't it? I'm going to close in prayer. Um, I'm going to pray in the theme of the parable of the... Um, not the parable, of the, uh, of the true story of the, the widow who gave um, her a couple of pennies. Father, thank you so much for that amazing woman. Thank you that... When she gave everything she had, she made no difference to the temple building project. And she was laughable to the accountants. She probably was that irritating person who opened the account for a pound and it cost more to count it than it did to serve the bank. But Lord, thank you that in actual money terms, she has released billions and billions and billions of gospel generosity. And what those rich people gave is literally dust in Jerusalem. And Father, I just praise you for that amazing illustration. I pray there would be people here who decide to give everything they have right now to you, to recognize it's all yours anyway, then to walk that journey with you and enjoy just the the freedom of recognizing they can stand under the waterfall of your limitless grace and you will provide, you will give and you will give and you will give and you will always give your Holy Spirit to those who ask them and pray that your Holy Spirit would fill each one here and, and give them wisdom, a sense of joy in their salvation, a sense of the freedom of not having to be the one who does anything. You're the giver, Lord. We have nothing that we haven't received from you. We pray that we'd feel an immense sense of freedom. And then we'd have the excitement of seeing what you have given us and just how we can pour out that bowl so it overflows to others as you keep filling it, Lord. Lord, I pray that conversations would come of this that would change the world in, in the way that that widow did. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you were challenged and encouraged by it. See you next time.